Would you open up your Bibles this morning to Psalm 40? We'll have two readings this morning, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. So Psalm 40 and then Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab a Bible from in front of you. And you can find the pages for our scripture readings on page 468 and page 1006. Hear the word of our God, Psalm 40, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 10. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we 
come this morning taking to heart Jesus' words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And oh, Father, we do come in the precious name of Jesus. He has saved us to the uttermost. He has laid his life down for his sheep. He has redeemed us from lawlessness and sin. He has sanctified us once for all. He has, by his blood, secured eternal redemption for his people. And so we offer up our prayers through Jesus, our great high priest. And we come with confidence this morning, knowing that this Jesus intercedes for us right now. And Father, we ask this morning, we desire, we need your spirit. We confess that our eyes do not see as they ought to, our ears do not hear as they ought to, our hearts do not love and desire as they ought to. And we cannot remedy these things for ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves, so we cry out this morning, Oh, Father, would you send your Spirit amongst us and give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts that desire and love rightly. Father, we pray this morning that you would work through this word that is about Jesus and his work and that you would move us to true religion that you'd move us to true love, that you'd move us to true worship and service. This is what we desire. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. As is quite obvious from the scripture readings this morning, we're not in the gospel of Mark. We're taking a short break from Mark. And before we launch into our text this morning, Psalm 40 from the Old Testament and Hebrews chapter 10 from the the New Testament, I want to offer you two reasons for this brief intermission. The first reason, Martin Luther wrote provocatively about working in the scriptures. In the midst of trying to figure out the gospel from the apostle Paul, Paul, Luther wrote this, Nevertheless, I beat persistently upon Paul at that place, most ardently to know what Paul wanted. And what Luther is saying here is that studying the scriptures is is grueling manual labor. It is hard work. He was beating again and again on Paul till Paul would give way and he could make sense of the gospel. And since the new year, we're 17 sermons into the gospel of Mark. We've been in the gospel of Mark for five months, and it may feel as if our knuckles are a bit bloodied and our our fists are bruised. And so for the sake of refreshment and the healing of our hands, it's good to take brief breaks, and we're going to take brief breaks throughout the summer from the Gospel of Mark. It's good to hear different voices in different parts of the canon of Scripture. This leads to a second reason for this intermission. Next week, I'm going to be out of the pulpit on study leave, out of the city and out of the country. Randy will be preaching next week. And so personally, this sermon is a ramp up for my study leave. And the desire is to leverage this sermon to cultivate a certain type within my own heart. And this has a corporate dimension as well, and it flows out of my personal desire. Summer, whatever that is here in Thunder Bay, I hear it does come once in a while is a time for a bit slower pace of life, hopefully. 
And I want this sermon to provide food for fodder and set a trajectory, set an aim for you this summer to be asking a few questions of yourselves. How can I leverage this summer to walk closer with my God? How can I leverage this summer, this time I have, this slower pace of the year, to have sweet communion with this God? And so I've entitled this sermon, Perfect Religion. Perfect Religion. Religion gets a bad rap in our, our day. I was raised on the slogan, it's about relationship, it's not about religion. It was printed on bumper stickers. I remember seeing it. I remember seeing it on t-shirts. I remember hearing it from the pulpit. And in charity, as much charity as I can muster up this morning, there is a measure of wisdom in this slogan. We desire communion with God. We desire to know this God. We desire to have real life with this God. We desire, as Psalm 63 says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. But is it really wise to make this distinction between religion and relationship? And I don't think it is wise. The great theological resource, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, gives us this definition of religion. Religion is the, the service and worship of God, says the dictionary. It is commitment for devotion to religious faith. And when we read the dictionary, religion doesn't seem to be such a bad thing. It doesn't seem to be so dubious. Service and worship of God, that seems rather essential to the Christian life. And when we begin to dig into the scriptures, we gain a more nuanced understanding of religion. The book of James offers us insight. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 help us out. James writes, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And according to James, all sorts of people are religious. But he makes a distinction. There is a worthless religion, and there is a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. There is indeed a right way to worship and serve God, and then there is a hypocritical way to worship and serve God. And if we move on from James to the Apostle Paul, Paul takes this issue a bit further. According to Paul, religion, the service and worship of God, is the great outcome of the gospel. Christ died, he was raised, he ascended to heaven, he poured out his spirit, why? So that his people might be completely and devoted to religion. From the the toes on our feet to the very hair on our heads, Paul writes that we may be religious. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We could say, which is your spiritual religion. And so the great issue this morning is not the distinction between religion and relationship, but rather, as James points out to us, worthless religion, worthless worship, worthless service, and true religion. Religion that pleases God, a worship that pleases God, a service that pleases God. And the great issue is whether or not we will fulfill Paul's appeal to us from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, offering up our whole bodies in worship to God. And so our aim this morning in looking into these texts from the Old Testament and the New Testament is to do a discriminating work. And we want to hover around three questions this morning as we look into these these texts. 
The first question is, what is worthless religion? Which leads to a second question, what is, what is true religion? And these two questions bring us to an ultimate question. How do we move from worthless religion to a true religion? And so we can start answering these questions by going back to the Old Testament and looking at Psalm 40. So in Psalm 40, the king of Israel, David, as the superscript records, makes an appearance before the congregation of his people. And David, in this context, has come to give a message to the people of God. But this is no ordinary message that David comes to give, but David has been solemnly charged and put under oath to preach to these people. We see this coming out in verse 10. David writes, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And these truths that David has been charged to preach, that he has been put under oath to tell the congregation, are deeply personal truths to David. David preaches from his own experience when he talks about the steadfast love of the Lord, when he talks about the the faithfulness of the Lord. And in verse 2, he describes this experience. He says, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And even more, these truths that David comes to the congregation with and that he proclaims to the congregation are extraordinary truths. They're not just truths about David's biography, just true for him, but they're truths that will lead the people of God, as verse 3 records, to put their trust in the Lord. And there are truths that ought to lead the people of God to worship God and have joy in this God. David writes about what these things are. Verse 5. He says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And so as we look into this news that David is is telling and how he's talking about how he's telling it, we have to ask, what is this message that David is proclaiming? What is this joyous news that he's bringing to bear upon the people of God? And we see in this psalm that David, in the midst of his joyous proclamation and from his experience of knowing the steadfast love of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord, has come to know something about religion. He's come to know what is true about religion and what is false about religion. And David, through this song that he is singing before the people of God, invites us to do a work of discrimination, to find out whether or not we are actually practicing true religion or we're practicing false and useless religion. And David's statements come with blessings and curses. Those who heed and obey David's words will find blessing according to verse 4. And those who disregard David's words, those who disregard David's example, will be put to shame according to verse 14. So we can go after our first question. What is false religion? What is worthless religion? And David begins instructing us by pointing us to the essence of worthless religion in verse 6. He gives us this succinct statement. He says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. We ought to let these words just sink into our heads a bit. What is David talking about? 
We are students of God's word. We know God's word well. And if we read the law of God, specifically Leviticus chapters 1 through 4, we find that the Lord literally does require sacrifice. It's in the law of God. Sacrifice was an institution woven into the daily and weekly and yearly fabric of the people of God. You look at an event in Israel and what's happening in the midst of it? Something is dying or something is being offered up. Even more, we find that the Lord really does care about sacrifice, even down to the minute detail. Leviticus specifies the what, the when, the who, and the how of sacrifice. And if the specifications of the what, the when, the who, and the how are not met, then the sacrifice is not accepted by this holy God who wrote Leviticus. And one just needs to turn to Leviticus chapter 10 and read the story of Nabat and Abihu to just to understand how much the Lord regards sacrifice and the when and the who and the what and the, the where. But here comes David and he's, he's preaching, he's singing this song to Israel in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. What is David talking about? Is David contradicting the will of God written in Leviticus chapters 1 through 4? Is he giving us some new revelation? We get a hint at what David means by looking to David's own life and the life of his children. And when we start to search the scriptures, we have no record in the scriptures of of David ever ceasing, putting to an end the practice of sacrifice within Israel. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, we find David building an altar where he offers oxen on it. We can move past the life of David and we can look into the life of Solomon, his son. Solomon surely grew up singing Psalm 40. His dad wrote it. Surely David taught him these, these lyrics. In sacrifice and offering you have, not requi- you have not delighted, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. But yet when we come to 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 63, we hear this. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. What is going on here? David didn't stop sacrifice. He didn't teach his son Solomon to stop sacrifice. So what does verse 6 mean? You have not delighted. You have not required. We get more help by comparing David's words with the words of two other prophets from the Old Testament. First, we need to look at the prophet Samuel. Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, draws near to Saul. And in this context, Saul has disobeyed the direct word of the Lord. And Samuel says this to the disobedient king. He rebukes him. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And what Samuel is saying here is he's making this great point that there is indeed something more important than sacrifice, something more fundamental. And he reveals that there are priorities in the law of God. While sacrifice is important, book of Leviticus chapters 1 through 4, obeying and listening to God ranks higher up on the scale of importance to God. Samuel instructs us to obey is better than sacrifice. Second, we can turn to another prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah pushes on this issue even further, and he takes it to the very center of the issue. In chapter 1 of his prophecy, he records the word of the Lord in verse 11. And here we hear the Lord's attitude towards Israel's sacrifices. 
What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. I do not delight. I have had enough. Those are strong words from the Lord. And we can ask Isaiah, why does the Lord have these feelings toward the sacrifices of the people of God? If we keep reading on in the book of Isaiah, we get to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And Isaiah lays bare the hearts of the people of God. He says this, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And according to Isaiah here, the great defect of Israel's sacrifice is the status of their hearts. While they're carrying on the services in the temple, the liturgy, the what, the when, the who, the where, the how of Leviticus, they have no inner delight in this God. They have no joy in this God. They have no love for this God. And ultimately, they have no real obedience and fear for this God. Their hearts are far from him. And from these comparisons, comparing David's words with Samuel and with Isaiah, we can begin to see that David exposes crucial doctrine about religion. In verse 6, David is not disparaging the outward form of a religion. God cares very much about what we do with our hands and our feet, but he gives weight, radical weight, to what we do with our hearts. And we can make an argument here. If God so specifically and carefully ordered the sacrifices in Leviticus chapters 1 through 4, giving the when of sacrifice, giving the who of sacrifice, giving the how of sacrifice, giving the what of sacrifice, how much more will this God care about the ordering of our hearts before him? How much more will this God care about the inclinations of our hearts before him? How much more will this God care about the posture of our hearts before him? There is something more important. David teaches us, worthless religion is this, to have a cold to have a dull and dead heart towards the God of the Scriptures. We have to realize what a terrible thing it is to be found with worthless religion, to be speaking the words of God, to be surrounded with the gospel of grace, to be busy in the service of God with our hands, but to have no inner delight in this God, to have no joy in this God. An English Puritan by the name of Richard Baxter wrote a little book called The Reformed Pastor. And in this book, he gives a series of warnings and exhortations to pastors about the ministry of the gospel. And and what he says to pastors is equally applicable to everyone. And he's pushing on this issue of worthless religion. And he writes, Take heed to yourselves lest you be void of the saving grace of God which you offer to others. And be strangers to the effectual working of that gospel which you preach. Lest while you proclaim to the world the necessity of a Savior, your own heart should neglect him, and you should miss of an interest in him and his saving benefits. Take heed to yourselves, lest you famish yourselves while you prepare food for others. Many a tailor goes in rags that makes costly clothes for others, and many a cook scarcely licks his fingers when he has made for others the most costly dishes. And Baxter pushes on us further. He says, Oh, what aggravated misery is this, to perish in the midst of plenty, to famish with the bread of life in our hands while we offer it to others and urge it upon them. 
what Baxter is doing here is he's, he's pressing, pressing David's doctrine of worthless religion into us. He makes us feel it. Oh, what aggravated misery is this to perish in the midst of plenty. Worthless religion is the greatest tragedy in the world. To be surrounded with the words of God. To be surrounded with the gospel of God. But yet not to taste God. Not to know his delight or his pleasure. So this moves us to a second question. What is true religion? And David answers us by way of personal testimony. Verses 7 through 8, he, he sings... Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. We have to notice carefully how David speaks about religion and what true religion actually is. The religion that David preaches and exemplifies before the Israel is not a law-free religion. It is not a religion simply about your feelings. It is not a duty-free, commandment-free religion. Rather, when we read carefully, we see that this religion that David puts on display before of Israel is consumed and carefully regulated by the law of God. So what then is so significant about David's words in verses 7 and 8? What is so significant? Well, the significance is this. The law of God, the rules of God, no longer stand on the outside of David as merely a written document Rather, the laws, the rules of God have penetrated his inner being. They've been written upon his heart. The blood in his veins pulse after this will of God, and he's become captivated with the God who has revealed himself in his word and laws. David's religion stands in sharp contrast to the religion of Israel in Isaiah's day. Israel was busy with their hands, supposedly doing the work of God. Israel was busy speaking the words of God, but their hearts were far from God. They were cold and distant. But here is David. His hands are busy doing the work of God. His mouth is busy speaking the words of God, but there is this fundamental difference. David has affections towards this God. He cries out, I delight. I delight to do your will, O my God. And David bears down upon us. We cannot simply define true religion by what we see and can compute. Yes, religion must involve our hands, our mouths, our feet, but the quality, the life of one's religion cannot be quantified like baseball statistics. It's not like numbering up the sacrifices you have made or the hours you have served or or prayed and then finally you come to this conclusion, I've arrived. I am now sufficiently religious. David is making a better argument. True religion extends from our hands, our feet, our mouths into the very inner recesses of our hearts. It is a reality of Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The totality of our being must be caught up in religion for this God, in love for this God. There's not one part that is exempt from this equation. And we can turn back to Richard Baxter's warning. He warns pastors, he warns us. He says, Oh, what aggravated misery is this, to perish in the midst of plenty, to famish with the bread of life in our hands. And the call of true religion is to take up that bread which we offer to others and eat it for ourselves. 
The call of true religion is to enjoy this God whom we speak of and and serve. It is a call to speak and feel the words of David and say, I delight, I delight to do your will, oh my God. So here we have false religion, true religion. But how did David move from false religion to true religion? How did he get from one spot to another? How did he gain this? And we find the answer embedded in verse 6. In the middle of David's description of worthless and empty religion, he says this about himself. But you have given me an open ear. But you have given me an open ear. If you're reading from your ESV this morning, the editors of the ESV have put a little number there, and you follow the number down to the bottom of the page. The editors give us the literal translation of the Hebrew. They say this, ears you have dug for me. And what an interesting and powerful metaphor David uses. Ears you have dug for me. To dig, this is the work that must be done with a shovel and a pickaxe. It is the work of carving out and excavating dry and hard ground. It is the the laborious and backbreaking work of removing rocks and debris from the ground. This is the word used throughout the book of Genesis to describe the work of the patriarchs when they dug wells for themselves. You can imagine the patriarchs digging away, finding water. And so what has the Lord done for David? How did the law penetrate David's heart? How did he gain true religion? Well, David testifies, ears you have dug for me. What we see here is that the Lord in his great mercy drew near to David's hard and stubborn heart. And we have to say this morning, David did have a hard and stubborn heart. He tells us about his his sin problem in Psalm 51. David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. But the Lord in his mercy and grace assumed the position of a laborer, a man with a shovel, and the Lord drew near to David with his divine shovel and pickaxe, and then he carefully dug through the hard soil that is David's head, and he removed the rocks, and he stripped away all the encumbrances and debris, and the Lord by his digging made a hole in David's head and a pathway down to his heart so that the law of God would enter in and thrive. David delighted. Because God dug. David delighted because God removed his hard heart. David delighted because God came to him and changed the inner affections of his heart. David delighted because God came to him and gave him ears to hear. David says, ears you have dug for me. David teaches us that true religion comes from the aim of religion, God himself. He is the digger of ears. And as we look into this ancient psalm and we hear David's testimonies, he cries out before the people, ears you have dug for me. He sings, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart and I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. And the great question for us this morning is can we experience these verses for ourselves? Can we have this true religion that David preaches and exemplifies before the people of God? Is it possible for me to worship and serve God from the toes of my feet to the hair on my head and everything in between into the very inner recesses of my heart? Can we take up these words for ourselves, ears you have dug for, for me? I delight, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is written within my heart. 
And the good news is that what happened to David is now true for the whole for a whole people, the church. And this is where we have to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. So we've talked a lot about David and David's life and David's religion, but the author of Hebrews comes along this morning and he tells us that this psalm actually speaks of a different man. This psalm fits someone else's life better than David's. Someone else makes better sense of this passage than David. We can ask the author of Hebrews, well, who is this man that you're speaking about? And the author of Hebrews points us to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, the author of Hebrews makes this connection become explicit. The text reads, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. So the author of Hebrews is telling us a bit of a story. We, we get this picture of Jesus coming to the world, and he's speaking something. What's on his lips? The author of Hebrews says, what was on his lips is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, the words we just worked through. And what the author of Hebrews wants us to do here is to see the words of Psalm 40 plastered over the, the whole life of Jesus. There is no part of Jesus' existence that did not wholly conform to the will and law of God. Jesus' hands, Jesus' feet, Jesus' heart, Jesus' mind, Jesus' soul all confess this reality. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. He wants us to read the words of Psalm 40 into each event of the life of Jesus. In the incarnation, in the toddler years of Jesus, in Jesus' teenage years, in his dealings with his family. As he began his ministry preaching in Galilee, as he ministered to the crowds, as he disputed with the scribes, as he, as he led the twelve along, explained to them gently and patiently, as he set his face like flint to go to the cross, as he endured suffering and persecution, as he hung on the cross, he had one desire and one des desire alone throughout this whole process, and it's this, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. And the author of Hebrews invites us this morning, he says, behold the perfectly religious man he has come, he has fulfilled the law of God. And then after pointing to Jesus, the author of Hebrews makes a startling and joyous conclusion about Jesus and his perfect religion. He makes this argument building off of Jesus, and he writes this in chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The author of Hebrews is making an argument here. The perfect religion of the one man, Jesus, has made a people, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, perfectly religious. And the author of Hebrews labors here in these chapters so that we would see the glories of Christ's work on our behalf. And we can just think this morning, what has, what has separated us from true religion? What has separated us from true service and worship to God? Well, this morning we can point to our sins. They certainly separate us from true worship and service of God. They pile up high. They stink. They fester. We can point to our defiled consciences. Our defiled conscience keeps us from worshiping and serving God. Our conscience accuses us. It says you're guilty. You cannot worship God. We can point to our broken and dull hearts. Our hearts just don't run after God. Our hearts are not naturally inclined after God. And we can point to our faulty ears. When we read the word of God, we do not hear 
We can point to our faulty eyes when we see reality. We do not see true reality. But the author of Hebrews leads us to see Jesus, the one who said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And by this will, the author of Hebrews announces, Jesus has saved us from our worthless religion. What of our sins? They're piled high to the sky. The gospel announces Christ, by the means of his own blood, has secured an eternal redemption for his people. What of our guilty consciences that condemn us? Let's say, you cannot worship God. You cannot serve this God. Well, the gospel proclaims that Christ has purified our consciences to serve the living God. What of our broken, our dull hearts, our, our, our faulty eyes, our faulty ears? Well, the gospel announces that Christ Jesus by his spirit has taken up the shovel and the pickaxe. He has removed the debris. He has removed the encumbrances. He has taken out all that hinders us from hearing the word of God. And he has drilled a hole into our hard heads. And he has made our hearts agreeable to the will and law of God. He has changed us from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, when when we look into Psalm 40 and we hear David's testimonies, He sings before the people, ears you have dug for me. He sings before the people, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. We, because of Christ, don't stand on the outside of Psalm 40 anymore. We can, we can take up these words for ourselves and we are encouraged through scripture to take up these words for ourselves. We can sing with David, I delight because of Christ to do your will. We can say because of Christ, ears, oh God, you have indeed dug for me. We can say with David, I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. Even more, I have tasted your faithfulness. I've tasted your steadfast love. We can rejoice today for Christ Jesus, the perfect man, the perfectly religious man, has rescued us from our useless and worthless worship. And he has drawn us near to worship and serve the living God. And the author of Hebrews preaches the gospel to us. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Or as David says, ears. Ears you have dug for me. So as we, we close this morning, I invite you to leverage this sermon for your eternal good. So if you are in Christ this morning, if Hebrews 10, verse 10 is true of you, that you've been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ, if you've had ears dug for you by the sovereign work of the Spirit, I call you to a work of discrimination. Have you leveraged Christ's ministry to your benefit? Have you realized today the fullness of what is yours in the obedient Son of God and how you've been fully rescued from worthless religion? He has sanctified you once for all. We have to ask ourselves this morning, what hidden corners of our hearts do we find worthless religion yet in? Where are there still weeds in our hearts Where are our hearts still dull and dead towards God? Where do I need to repent and and turn from dullness and deadness? And where do I need to push in this great gospel that Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10 announces to me today?
if you are outside of Christ this morning, if you haven't experienced Hebrews 10, verse 10, I call you to a work of discrimination and discernment as well. Will you keep hearing God's word without tasting the goodness of God's word? Will you go on hearing God's word without tasting its, its goodness? Will you go on hearing about Christ Jesus without taking refuge in this Jesus? Will you go on in religiosity, doing things, but having no heart for this God, having no desire for him? Let Richard Baxter's words just settle into your hearts. Oh, what aggravated misery is this to perish in the midst of plenty, to famish with the bread of life in our hands while we offer it to others and urge it upon them. Oh, what aggravated misery. And the call of the gospel for you today is to take up the bread and eat it. The call of the gospel today is to experience true religion for yourself in Jesus Christ, the perfect man. Take up this gospel and believe. Appropriate it to yourself through faith. Take up the promise and treasure. Baxter urges us to famish with the bread of life in our hands while we offer it to others and urge it upon them is the greatest misery. The bread of life has been offered this morning and I urge you to take it up, eat, and find true satisfaction. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for this good word. We praise you that in Jesus Christ, the age of the good things has come. And we have tasted of it this morning that Christ Jesus has come and he entered this world saying, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Father, we thank you for the redemption that is in Christ for us, how he has shed his blood, how he's redeemed us so that we might serve the living God. And so, Father, we pray, press these truths into our hearts that we might live before you. Amen.